0: Hey there, good to see you again this weekend. Uh, Glad you can join us. Uh, Many of you have been joining us for a while, been hearing from a lot of you, and so thank you for giving us a shout out, and kind of share this experience with others, right? Uh, Good way for you to invite others to join us on the journey. Uh, My name's Dan, if I've never met you, one of the pastors here at the Norton Camps of Grace Church. Let me start by saying this, uh, this coming week, Veterans Day. I just wanna say a shout out to all the veterans who might be watching this, thank you, thank you, thank you for your sacrifice, your service, your investment. Thank you for those of you who might be watching this and you're active right now. Thank you for your investment, your service to our country. We feel so honored that you're watching. Thank you for the way that you've served uh, our country and even served us. Uh, We're in this journey together. I was thinking about, I wanna jump right in, but I was thinking about many of you as we take this journey. Uh, Some of you are newer to the Bible and yet, you know what's interesting is this, uh, some of you are newer to the Bible and you didn't realize how much of the Bible you knew and how much of the Bible you already use. Like there's phrases that we use in our common uh, verbiage that we don't realize where they came from, but some of them came from the Bible. For instance, you ever use the verbiage, uh, skin of my teeth, right? Uh, right from the book of Job, right? Uh, salt of the earth, Jesus in the book of Matthew said that. Drop in the bucket, you ever use that? That's uh, just a drop in the bucket. Book of Isaiah, right? It's kind of fascinating. Or how about this? Uh, that person's got feet of clay. Daniel chapter 2, right? Pastor Aiden led us through that. You ever hear this one? Handwriting on the wall. Right out of the book of Daniel, which is what we're studying, right? Daniel chapter 5. In fact, that's where I want to go for this weekend. Daniel 5. And I want to take a look at this story from which we get that phrase, handwriting on the wall. What does that mean? Simply means this. Something's gonna happen. Hasn't happened yet, but it is a sure thing it's going to happen, right? Now, I was watching that crazy game uh, last week. I didn't watch it live, but I watched replays of it, right? And uh, my team, Penn State, played many of y'all's team, Ohio State, and it was about the first quarter where the handwriting was on the wall, right? Uh, we were going to lose that game. Uh, handwriting on the wall. Your, your company uh, begins to reduce and, and, and layoffs begin to happen per seniority. And the person right under you in seniority gets laid off. And you're like, oh, man, I see the handwriting on the wall. If something hadn't happened yet, it's a sure thing. And see, we're in this journey in Daniel because Daniel and his three friends, we talked about them last week, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Rack, Shack, and Benny, right? Uh, they kind of are, for us, an example of what it means to live in exile. They were literal exiles in a literal Babylon. And they show us what does it mean to live as engaged exiles? Because when the Bible talks about Babylon, it's not just a real place, real people, it was that, but it also is a picture of any culture that dismisses, minimizes, ignores, or tries to live independent of God. And so what the Bible says is this, for a follower of Jesus, you're an exile in a culture that many times minimizes, ignores, dismisses, or lives independent of God. And so this whole study is about how do we live as engaged exiles that influence that culture. We're in Daniel 5, and what's interesting about Daniel 5 is Daniel 5, you may not know this, is a chapter that critics of the Bible will use to point out the fact, hey, the Bible's not true. I showed you Daniel 5. You might be saying to yourself, well, how do they do that? Well, let's just dig right in. I want to show you. The Bible's fascinating. Let's let it come alive, right? Daniel 5 starts this way, King Belshazzar, let's stop, because that's where many critics of the Bible will point that when you look at history, there's like three kings from King Nebuchadnezzar to the destruction of Babylon. And those three kings, none of them are named Belshazzar. That's interesting, right? In fact, critics would point to the fact that the very last king of Babylon was a guy named Nabonidus. So all of a sudden we got a problem, right? We got a conflict until you realize that some years ago they did an archeological dig and they found an inscription. And the inscription points out to the fact that Nabonidus, last king of Babylon, during the last years of his reign, exiled himself to the desert. And when he did that, he appointed his son, co-ruler, co-regent of Babylon. And the inscription said this, that his son's name was, you guessed it, Belshazzar. I love that, right? This is a story about King Belshazzar says, he gave a great banquet for a thousand, this is a big party, party to meet all parties, of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. Who's who of Babylon, right? While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, not really his biological dad, it's like like we would say George Washington, father of our country, Nebuchadnezzar the father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. All he's doing here is he's parading the accomplishments of Babylon. That's all he's doing so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Guys, you need to know this is a very unusual setting. It would have been very unusual for the king to bring in his wives and his concubines who literally were trained for sexual pleasure. It's like Belshazzar's throwing this party. He's like, I'm going to get drunk on my accomplishments. Look at all the conquest. I'm going to get drunk on pleasure. I'm going to get drunk on wine. We're going to throw a big old party. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank wine from these goblets from God's temple, they praised their gods, the God of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They used these holy articles to the Hebrew people to toast their own gods unbelievable. Like this is a frenetic atmosphere. Like there's a frenzy about it. Like it's full of sexuality, sensuality, drunkenness. It's even got a spiritual frenzy to it where at the end, it's almost like Belshazzar's giving God the finger. (laughs) It's interesting, you would begin to think to yourself, man, what is going on here? And I think what helps make this more sense to me and is gonna help us today is to understand the timing of this party Belshazzar's throwing. Now you may not know this, I don't know that I would have known this had I not dug into this some, but this is interesting, that Belshazzar is throwing this party, this frenetic party, and literally seven to 10 days before the party, the Babylonian army his army have been decimated by the army of the Medes and the Persians. And literally miles away, rolling towards the capital is the Medes and the Persians coming. You can hear the echoes of the enemy army coming. And in the shadow of the fragility of his kingdom, and in the shadow of the finality of his kingdom, Belshazzar throws this party to meet all parties. Why? It's almost like he's trying to one last grasp of significance, one last grasp. I'm gonna become intoxicated with the things that I can become intoxicated with. Something interesting happens. Suddenly, verse five, the fingers of a human hand appeared. That would be kind of weird, right? I guess like Adam's family. Somebody old enough to remember that the thing, right? You know, like this, this the fingers show up. Wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. King watched hand wrote. His face turned pale. I bet it did. He was so frightened his legs became weak. I bet they did, and his knees were knocking. How quickly he went from cocky to afraid. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, all the wise men. And this is what he says to them. Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple, gold chain will be placed around your neck and be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. Why third? Well, we just learned that because Nebuchadnezzar's dad was one, he's two. That's all the further he could raise him in the kingdom. All the wise men came in and they could not read the writing, so... The king became even more terrified. His face even more pale. His nobles were baffled. There's this writing on the wall. Nobody knows what it means. King is freaking out. Nobody brings in all the wisest guys he has. Nobody can tell him what it means. Then there's a woman. (laughs) The queen. Some scholars think maybe the queen mother, maybe Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. I'm not sure. Hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, there's an uproar. Came into the banquet hall. She says, May the king live forever. Seems like that's what you're supposed to say, right? When you come into the king's presence. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. He says, in the time of your father, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because, this is key to me, she says, Daniel. She refers to him by his Hebrew name. That's interesting to me whom the king Nebuchadnezzar called Belteshazzar was found to have a keen mind, knowledge, and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. He'll tell you what the writing means. By the time she says this, Daniel, who we started the story, he was 15, he's now in his 80s. Daniel's in his 80s. So Daniel was brought before the king. Imagine the scene for a minute. Daniel's brought before the king. He walks in. He smells the liquor in the air. He looks and there are people everywhere, half-dressed women everywhere. And then he sees the articles from the temple of God with lipstick stains on them. And he stands before a king who doesn't even know him. Daniel, this man who had risen to such prominence in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. The king says to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles, my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard the spirit of God is with you. You have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. Then the king says, These wise men of my enchanters were brought, and they couldn't read what the writing said. They couldn't explain it to me. Verse 16, I heard that you're able to give interpretations, solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple, gold chain, third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel says to the king, we'll get to this in a second, keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and I'll tell him what it means. And then what Daniel does, we skip chapter four, didn't we? He gives us a summary of chapter four. He says, your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty, greatness, glory, and splendor. That would have been a different idea to Belshazzar. God did that? God gave him the greatness and splendor? Daniel's like, yeah, the most high God is the one who put him there. Because of the high position he gave him, all nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. Like he had a lot of power. But when his heart became, say the word out loud, if you're reading with me, became what? Arrogant. Hardened with what? Pride. He was deposed from his royal throne, stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people, given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, literally. Read chapter four. And his body was drenched with dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes like God's in charge. And you read chapter four, you see this is literally what happened, that King Nebuchadnezzar is deposed from his throne, lived seven years as an animal. As an animal because of his pride. Isn't it true that when we give in to our pride, Many times we act like animals. Isn't that true? And so Daniel's talking to Belshazzar, and then he says this, he says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven, You had the goblets from the temple brought to you, you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines, this party drank wine from them. You then toasted, praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They can't see, hear, or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent his hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription. That was written, mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here's what the words mean. Mene, God's numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you, imagine hearing this, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple and a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. I don't think Daniel's impressed because he realizes that he's going to be the third highest in the kingdom for a moment. That very night, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. What a story. (laughs) What a story. Maybe for some of somebody, first time you ever, what a fascinating story. What in the world are we to do with this story? How does this apply to us, 2020? 21st century, American, how does this apply to us? Well, I think the way for us to get perspective from this story is to focus on the three key characters. There's three key characters that I, I wanna hone in on. First is Belshazzar, second is Daniel, and third is the fingers of God. Let's start with Belshazzar. Uh, The king of Babylon is where we're going to start our focus. He's partying, right? He's partying, but he's got this inevitable doom echoing. The army of the Medes and the Persians, they're coming. You can hear the echo of them coming outside the walls of his kingdom. Begs the question, why is he throwing a party now? Some would say, well, he's in denial. Some would say he's just drowning out reality with revelry. Some would say he's so preoccupied with his own accomplishments that that he can't even see the inevitable that's coming. Some would say he's trying to numb reality by becoming intoxicated and drunk with pleasure. Here's what I know. Belshazzar is a picture of the impact of pride in a relentless pursuit for significance. That's what he is searching for what makes me matter independent of God and the whole while missing the truth of God. Listen, listen, lean in. There's a little Belshazzar in all of us. (laughs) Many of us this weekend are on this quest for significance. For many of us, we're looking for significance. And for many of us, we can begin to, in the pride of our heart, look for that significance and what makes us matter apart from God. We can begin to look for significance becoming preoccupied with building our own kingdom, intoxicated with enjoying our own pleasure. We can, in our search for significance, be dismissive of God, or maybe worse yet, look for how we can use God. To pursue our kingdom. I think Belshazzar causes us to ask this question. I would write it down. Belshazzar causes me to ask, is my prideful pursuit to matter? Am I drowning out the echoes of God's truth that matter in my life? Literally, he's throwing this party and he, he, literally he's throwing a party as the army of the Medes and the Persians are coming. The truth of the matter is coming. He's throwing a party. And I got to ask myself, is my prideful pursuit for significance to matter somehow drowning out the voice of God, the voice that matters in my life? Truth is, we're exiles here. And yet we can live like we're permanent residents if we're a follower of Jesus. And we can get so caught up in pursuing significance, so caught up in making sure that we matter, that we miss the echoes of the voice of God in our life. The truth that matters. Here's the way Psalm 10 puts it. In his pride, the wicked man doesn't seek God. In all his thoughts, there's no room for God. Here's the way Psalm 90 puts it. It says, our days have come to 70 years, 80. If our strength endures... Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass we fly away. If we only knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us, here it is, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Listen, listen, I just talked to you for a minute. There is a deep desire inside of all of us to know we matter, to know that there is something significant. There is a fear inside of all of us, of being forgettable. That fear is real. And the closer the echoes of death get, the more we try to stave off the reality, the more frenetic we become in trying to blunt the reality of the echoes outside of our wall. There's an author whose name is Ernest Becker. He wrote a secular book. It's not a Christian book, called Denial of Death. But I think his book literally could be a commentary on Daniel 5. <laughs> he says some interesting things. If, if you'll just, uh, I apologize, but if you'll just go with me here for a minute. The book's premise is, is this, that human civilization or culture is a defense mechanism against the knowledge that we're going to die. He he argues that humans live in a physical world of objects, but also in a symbolic world of meaning. And so here's what he says. Listen to this. He says, people try to create or become part of something that they believe will last forever. Art, music, literature, religion, nation states, social and political movements. He says, such connections, they believe, give meaning to their life. Because humans cannot live in full, honest awareness of the meaning of death. He says, if that is the end, we can't make sense of our life. If death is the end, no one can face that. And there's no reason, if death is the end, to choose X over Y. There's no reason to kiss somebody or hit somebody, to love them or hate them. Every culture, he says, wants to be heroic and deny their creatureliness. We need to feel heroic that our life matters in the grand scheme of things. To help us stave off feeling insignificant and forgettable, he says we employ several solutions. Look at this with me. Three in particular. It's right out of Daniel 5. He says, first is this. In order to feel significant, we employ the romantic solution. Belshazzar, his wives and his concubines, literally, here's what... Ernest Becker says, modern man fixes his need for the heroic experience onto another person. It's his love object, per se. And so the weight of my significance is now attached to being loved by them, admired by them, pleasured by them, fulfilled by them. In case you're inclined to, to think, well, is that true? Do we really deify some sort of romantic love? Just listen to pop music. Just listen to pop music and how pop music talks about the experience of love being like heaven, being divine. Your eyes are like the stars. There's an old Hindu song that says this, My lover is like God. If she accepts me, then my existence is utilized. Here's the problem with that solution. So some of you are like, I get it, right? The problem with that is the weight of that, the weight of my significance being placed on it will crush another person. No human being can bear that weight. And yet the flip of that is true. The weight of their rejection will crush us if that's our solution. And so what happens for many people is because one person can't bear that weight in the romantic solution and because I can't bear the weight of simply their rejection, I begin to look for objects of my love, fantasy and real. I begin to look for my own concubines. When when that solution doesn't work, Ernest Becker points to another solution he calls the creative solution. Think about this. Belshazzar brought in the gold and the silver. It's his way of saying, look at what I've achieved. The creative solution says this, you and I need to separate ourselves from everybody else. I need to somehow be unique. It's important that I make a name for myself. The the problem with that solution is this, is that I alone can't judge whether or not I've made a name for, for myself. Only someone outside of me can which leads many people to the third solution. They go from the romantic solution to the creative solution to the religious solution. You see that in Belshazzar. He's toasting the gods with utensils that were meant to worship the true God. Religion sounds like the the right solution, doesn't it? Sounds like the right one. What Becker says in his book is fascinating, that when we look for this solution, we look for a God, and we try to find out what the, now listen close, what the will of that God is so that we can do the the will of that God, why? To impress that God, why? So that that God will bless my ambitions because I've impressed them, that's religion. And Becker said that solution, he was not a Christian, by the way, Becker. Becker found the problem with this solution when he wrote this, how easily, listen, this is so convicting. How easily religious people will shed blood to purchase assurance of their own righteousness. What he's saying is this, in this solution we impress God to bless our ambition, listen, listen, even if that means it has to oppress other people. You see, here's in our prideful pursuit to matter, just like Belshazzar, we can drown out the voice and the truth of God. And here's why this is important. Listen close. Because eventually the echoes outside of our wall, that's Belshazzar's story, Medes and Persians coming, becomes the handwriting on the inside of the wall of our life. Write this down somewhere. Eventually the handwriting shows up on my wall. Eventually the handwriting shows up on my wall. That moment for you, it might be, when you get the diagnosis from the doctor. It might be when the you get served the papers from your spouse. It might be when you get laid off from your job. It might be when you have that tough conversation. But it's that moment, just like Belshazzar, takes your breath away. It's that moment that literally begins to affect you in a way that you become pale. Knees begin to knock. What did Belshazzar do in his handwriting on the wall moment? He called in the Babylonian Dr. Phil. (laughs) He called in the Babylonian Oprah. He called in the Babylonian wise men. And just like Belshazzar, when that moment comes, we begin to grasp because we want to know what our life means and what matters. Eventually, in the story of Belshazzar, a woman pointed him to the man who could help. How often does that happen, right? This man had been somebody, Daniel, who had been relegated to an obscure position in the kingdom by this time because he needed to know something that Daniel needed to tell him. Listen, I want to tell you something. I've been a pastor for about 28 years. And I want to tell you something. I love what I get to do. And uh, I absolutely love what I get to do. As a pastor, I don't, nor do I want to, but I don't get invited to a lot of people's parties. And I don't want to, right? I'm a busy schedule. I'm not looking to get invited. But I do, as a pastor, get invited to a lot of people's handwriting on the wall moments where they want to know answers at a moment that is defining because it's in those handwriting on the wall moments where the echoes of truth that were just outside of my life become urgent emergencies inside the walls of my life. All of a sudden, God's got my attention in a unique way, which leads Belshazzar to Daniel. If Belshazzar is a picture of the impact of pride, then Daniel's a picture of the humble influence that comes from security. Daniel's about 80. He's he's lived a long life as exile. He's continued to faithfully follow God as an exile. And when you look at this story, there's four very important things Daniel teaches us about how to live as humble, engaged exiles. First is this, and I don't want to spend tons of time here, but for 60 plus years, Daniel never forgot who he was. I love that the queen mother refers to him as Daniel, his Hebrew name, which means God is my judge. He lived in this other culture that tried to rename him and re-identify him, and he never forgot who he was. Write this down somewhere. I need to remember who I am. I need to remember who I am. As exiles, we can be tempted, listen, to make a name for ourselves because we think that the way to make a name for ourselves is in what we accomplish. Some Some of you young adults, you're watching this, right? You think, I gotta make a name for myself in what I've done. A follower of Jesus has a name because of what Jesus has accomplished. They know who they are. In Christ, I am who I am because he says who I am. And when I know who I am, I'll know what to do. I have this thing that I keep close by. In Christ, I am accepted. I am his child. I am his friend. I am justified. I'm bought with a price. I'm a member of his body. I'm complete. I am secure. I'm free from condemnation. I am part of, hidden in Christ, Part of the temple of God. I am a citizen of heaven. I am significant. I am an ambassador for Jesus. I am God's workmanship. On and on and on and on and on. Here's the deal. Exiles of Christ. Exiles here. Followers of Christ. I am a child of God who just happens to be a pastor. In a true? we we meet people like, what do you do? Who are you? I'm a pastor. I'm a truck driver. I'm a bricklayer. I'm a child of God. Boom. I know who I am. I just happen to be a pastor. I'm a trophy of grace. I just happen to be a bricklayer. I am a masterpiece in the hands of God. I just happen to be a mom. I am an ambassador for Jesus. I just happen to work in a grocery store. I love this. Daniel never forgot who he was. Parents, don't just tell your kids what to do. Don't just tell them what God wants them to do. I beg you, teach them who they are. Because when I know who I am, I'll know what to do. Second, second thing that strikes me is this. Daniel refused the king's gifts. Why? Because he knew that the message was from God. Belshazzar needed a revelation from God. What's the point? Write this down. Daniel knew this, that there are some things that only God can answer. There are some things that, That this was not Daniel just being unduly humble. Daniel's making a statement. He's saying, Belshazzar, you need to hear from God. And Daniel trusted God's word completely. He knew and trusted the word of God and the God of the word. And when he got called in to the presence of the king, he knew that there were some questions only God can answer. Listen, I'm going to clear something up Christianity is not anti science. tweet it, post it on Facebook. Science is wonderful, although I wasn't that good at it, right? I had to sit beside the smart girl in class, right? But science is wonderful. Faith is not opposed to science. Go to the doctor. (laughs) I love my doctor. Don't just go to the doctor, listen to the doctor, right? But here's the point. The point isn't Christianity is opposed to science. Faith is uh, is opposed to science. That's not it. Science can't tell you everything. Science tells you what is, but it has a hard time telling you what ought. Science can't tell you what's right and wrong. Science isn't going to be able to answer the questions of the meaning of life, what happens after death. Unless you go to God and his word, you cannot, nor will you adequately deal with the issue of significance in your life. If we have been created, our significance is wrapped up and rooted in our creator. And if you and I don't trust the Bible completely, here's what we're left. This is so important. If you and I don't trust the Bible completely, we are left to make up a God in our image. And you know what that is? idol. And many of us have done that. Guys, I meet with people all the time and this is what they'll say to me. I don't think God would do that. My God wouldn't say that. My God wouldn't act like that. And what happens is we make up a God in our own imagination and that's an idol. Listen, If you don't have a God who disagrees with you occasionally, then you may not have a personal relationship with the God of the Bible. You might have a God of your own imagination and idol. If you don't have a God who makes you restless sometimes, (laughs) if you don't have a God who sometimes leaves you unsettled, maybe even sometimes makes you angry, you might not, that's a relationship. You might have a God that you've made up in your own mind. Daniel trusted God completely. And he knew there are some questions that only God can answer. Third, he reviews King Nebuchadnezzar's story, the story of this proud king deposed from his throne. Why? Here's what, here's what I want you to write down. Daniel knew this, that at the end of my pride, the goodness of God can be experienced. That's what he knew. Guys, I'm struck by this. Daniel, this is so fascinating. Daniel is called in to the presence of King Belshazzar, literally the second most powerful man. No one else in the room can read what's on the wall. Only Daniel. Daniel could have been tempted to say, well, if no one else can read it, maybe I ought to make something up that's a little more palatable. (laughs) Maybe I ought to say something that's a little nicer. He didn't, did he? But he spoke the truth and he said, King, here's what the here's what it means. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth with grace. You don't see any kind of like snarkiness with Daniel. He gave the truth with grace. And the truth was this. He said to King Belshazzar, the thing that the the heart of what's the matter is simply this. It's a matter of your heart. He says it's your pride. Listen, 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 listen. In our culture, I just want to talk to you for a second, we don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to talk about sin and at the core of our sin is pride and our pride and our sin are the very things that make us beast-like. And I want to tell you this, you cannot or nor will you understand the power or the provocative nature of the gospel until you are shocked by your sin and come to the end of your own pride. I think Daniel teaches that. That's why for some of us, what's the big deal about Jesus dying and everybody gets so wrapped up in this? And that will never be a big deal until you are shocked at your sin. And The goodness of God is experienced at the end of my pride. Which leads to this finally as Daniel watched them drink to their own gods from the goblets that were intended for his God, I think there's something that is important. It's essential for you and I to know the difference between an act of faith and simply religious activity. They were literally using the vessels of God to toast their own gods. Guys, I want to say something hard, but it's so easy for us to do that. It's so easy for us in our independent prideful moments to become religious, even in church, in a Christian church, to become religious in order that we might impress God so that he might bless our agenda, so that he might bless our passions, bless our priorities, even if that means oppressing others in the meantime. It's easy for us to do that as individuals, as a community, as a nation, whatever it might be. You see, Daniel teaches us what it means to humbly engage, which leads us to this fascinating, this fascinating image, the fingers that show up, the fingers of God. What does God write? Why does he write on the wall? In essence, Belshazzar was giving God the finger, so God showed up with his finger. And he wrote a message. It was God's way of saying to Belshazzar, it hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. Your kingdom and your accomplishments are coming to an end and another kingdom is getting ready to rule. Here's what's fascinating about that in engaging with a guy named Tim Keller on this passage. He points to the fact that the only other time that the finger of God is mentioned in the New Testament is found in the book of Luke. This is powerful, guys the book of Luke chapter 10, it says this, that Jesus sent out his disciples and his followers and he told them to tell people the kingdom of God is near, the echoes of the kingdom of God is near. He said, go preach a story of grace, go heal the sick, go help the poor, feed the hungry. They came back and said, wow, people's lives are transforming. It's incredible. Chapter 11, then Jesus cast out a demon and some people around were saying this, he does that only with the help of Satan. Jesus says, hey, you know, a house divided against itself can't stand. Some of you use that phrase, right? But then Jesus says something fascinating in Luke 11. He says this. In Luke 11, he says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Listen, listen, then we're done. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, if you don't know it, you don't know it, and whoever you are listening, your world as you know it is gone. Not yet, but there's another kingdom coming. It's the kingdom of God. It's here now, yet not completely. It's already, not yet. The handwriting's on the wall. The kingdom of God is here. You see, Daniel's story points to a bigger story. We have a God who exiled himself to earth. You need to know that. That the Jesus who was speaking in Luke 11 is God in the flesh who exiled him to this earth. In this kingdom, we we have a king who already had all the glory. He already had, but he set aside his glory and was crushed. You know why? Because you and I were the objects of his love. You and I were the objects of his love. We have a king who didn't need to come and do anything to make a name for himself. The Bible says this, his name is above all other names. And yet the one who already had the name came and accomplished on the cross what you and I needed for our rescue and our salvation. That's the king. We have a king who came and lived and then died and then rose again. And the Bible says that king is coming back and so his kingdom is here, but not yet. There's gonna come a day when he comes and he restores and he invites into the party of the king all those who have said yes. Listen close, listen close. Every time God breaks into your life and Jesus becomes the king, you and I become part of the handwriting on the wall in this cultural moment. The question becomes this. The final question of Daniel 5. As an engaged exile, does my life make legible the handwriting of God to our culture? I gotta ask myself this. Am I somebody who, like Daniel, is gonna make legible the handwriting of God speaking the truth with grace, helping the poor, feeding the hungry, preaching grace, not looking to impress God to bless my agenda, but looking to bless God who came to save me, not looking to oppress others in the process, But because that God came to save me, I'm going to help those who are oppressed. When culture looks at our lives as followers of Jesus, do we make the handwriting of God and the heart of God legible? God, I pray we will. Thank you for Daniel 5. Thank you for the power of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.